Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Like I said, when I'm on my driverless rides, the first two minutes, it's, it's, it's amazing. You look, you see no one in the front seat. But ultimately, this, this just boils down to a transportation product, right? It's got to get you from point A to point B, and it's got to do so better than the equivalents that are out there today. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I am your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we are talking self-driving cars. So, in case you didn't know, monumental things are afoot when it comes to self-driving cars, robo-taxis, ghost taxis, whatever you want to call it. Um, So in San Francisco, Cruise, which is the self-driving arm of GM, Cruise was a startup that GM acquired some years back, and Cruise recently applied in the last couple weeks to become the first company in America to start offering fully autonomous taxi services. So that is no safety driver, just a car. And that would be to cart around actual humans, paying passengers. Um, So this is a very big deal. Now, obviously, they have not been approved yet, but they have applied. So they feel like the technology is finally, finally ready. And of course, this builds on a more recent approval back in September, where the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, gave two companies, Cruise and Waymo, approval to start autonomous delivery operations. But these are pretty limited, only at certain times of the day, or in Waymo's case, with a safety driver, etc. And of course, no humans, uh, no paying passengers. Anyhow, if and when Cruise gets the the final go-ahead, this will be a watershed moment, not least because they're planning to do it in San Francisco, which is notoriously horrendous uh, as a place to drive, given the hills, the fog, just the sheer density, number of people, cyclists, etc. in the street. Anyhow, I was thinking about all of this at this kind of upcoming moment in the context of the work that has gone into this industry. So if you go back to 2009, that was when Waymo started as a kind of a skunk works within Google. Since then, we're talking about close to $100 billion has been plowed into this industry. Lots of companies have come and gone, but Cruise appears to be on the cusp of a potential real breakthrough here. So that is the context, all of that is the context for this week's guest, Oliver 
Cameron. He has a fabulous story to tell. He's a Brit. He is a self-taught coder. He came out here a decade ago. He launched a few companies that have nothing to do with self-driving. And then he did launch, finally, his own self-driving startup four years ago. It's called Voyage. He raised a good amount of money, made some headway, struck some deals, was kind of making progress, but in March decided to sell to Cruise, where he is now the head of product working on this team trying to kind of bring this idea, this kind of futuristic idea that we've that has kind of gone through the hype cycle the ups and the downs and now seems to be kind of coming back again finally bring this to the masses so what you're about to hear is his journey from back in his days in west yorkshire to arriving here the ups the downs where he is now and helping lead this team that is working on what is broadly considered the hardest ai challenge really that there is so there's a lot of good lessons packed in here you're really going to enjoy it so i will now hand you over to my conversation with oliver Cameron, founder of Voyage, and now at Cruise. Enjoy. So I saw the video that Kyle put out recently, and I was like, the car kind of rolling up, and it's all lit up inside, and there's no driver, and it looks it looks very ghosty and very <laughs> kind of spooky and kind of cool. And so that's obviously a really eye catching thing but also just trying to understand kind of what it all means because you guys have been approved to start commercial deliveries as i understand it but not passengers yet and you can only operate between the hours of 10 and 6 and there's other you know there's various limitations around this and just trying to understand when we step back and look at you know elon musk and others being like a million robo taxis the world over the world's going to change and no one needs to own a car because there's just going to be these ghost taxis will appear at the tap of your iphone and that's this is the way the future is going to be and we and no one's going to be getting in car accidents and isn't this all wonderful so where are we in 2021 how how do we make sense of where the technology is and where it needs to go 2021 is honestly it's an incredible year for self-driving cars and for Cruise specifically, there's been two incredible achievements in 2021, and both revolve around two areas, technical achievements and regulatory achievements. Mm. The technical achievements is the most fundamental and the most critical. It's that for the first time ever, a driverless car, meaning no human in the front seat, no need to monitor uh, the vehicle, a car is driving entirely by itself on the streets of San Francisco, one of the hardest, most complex places in the world. That's happening today. It happens every single day, and it's it's real. I've seen it. I've been in it. That's where I was uh, last night uh, experiencing this yet again. It's amazing. You are taking a ride. I've taken a, a bunch of rides at this point. Right. You know, after two minutes, the, the novelty uh, wears away, and it becomes a purely different form of transportation, uh, one that's smoother, safer, just inherently more comfortable than, than people are, are used to. That's the thing that excites me most about self-driving cars. It's that obviously safety is a, is a huge lever and uh, an important thing to continue to improve for road safety. And self-driving cars play a huge role in reducing the number of fatalities and accidents and everything else. It's just an inherently better product as well, right? Like. You know, someone was telling me last night that they went in our driverless AV. It was smooth. It was calm. It was reassured. It was confident in its driving. 
And then they had to use an Uber uh, the next day in, uh, to go somewhere else. And the driver was talking their ear off and the ride was bumpy and they were speeding and just a, a number of different things that, you know, detract from the experience of moving from A to B. Anyway, so technical achievements, monumental, and we should talk about those. There's also permitting on regulatory achievements. Cruise is the only company mm. in the world or rather in the U.S. Um, that can in California move passengers in a fully driverless car. Uh, we can't yet um, take fares from those passengers, but we recently applied for that permit as well. Oh, you have applied for that permit? Correct. As of last week, I believe. Oh, okay. So right now you're, the, the passengers are cruise employees, basically. Uh, correct. But this is part of our very natural ramp up to move members of the general public and at some point in the near future, moving members of the general public and taking fares from them to move them from A to B. Right. How long have you been working on this? So I've personally been working on this for six years now. And, you know, I, I meet folks every day that have been working on this for seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years. It's, it's an incredible technology that has a long, long history. I got into this because of founding another self-driving company called Voyage. And Voyage was acquired by Cruise in, in March of this year. And at Voyage, we focused very much so on moving senior citizens. We wanted yeah. to provide senior citizens an alternative to giving up their car keys and not being able to move at all. Why not give them access to a self-driving car that enables them to move around their community? And we worked on that for about uh, just over four years. Voyage was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was really focused on kind of retirement communities, kind of pretty controlled low-key areas basically we wanted to find dense populations of our customer right and and retirement communities obviously have a a large contingent of senior citizens yeah and we thought what better place to to launch these vehicles than in that region what one of the interesting things though is that um there are as you've probably noticed and you mentioned earlier with tesla that there's lots of folks in this industry looking to achieve somewhat similar things and what became obvious to me at Voyage is that there is a path uh, for a smaller company to achieve limited forms of autonomy, mm. but to deliver autonomy that is, you know, substantially above the human benchmark and substantially better than many of the ride hail experiences and, and delivery experiences that are out there today, it requires the sort of investment and the sort of partnerships that Cruise has. We're talking billions of dollars and we're talking years and years of thousands of people putting their hearts and soul into this. And um, there isn't, you know, a, a stone that's been unturned in this journey. And I, when I look at the, the competitive landscape and I hear the statements from others in this space, I tend to not believe that others know something that Cruz doesn't. Right? Yeah. I, I tend to believe that um, they just haven't experienced the issues that Cruise has experienced in the past and, and overcome after, again, seven years of doing, Cruise specifically, seven years of doing this. Well, it's interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure you and everybody at the company and everybody in this industry saw the stories, whatever it was a month ago in San Francisco, where there's the dead end street and all the Waymo cars queuing up to do a U-turn in and out all night long. And it's kind of like... On one hand, it's like a Monty Python sketch. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, here are these really smart driverless cars being powered by AI, and they're like doing five point turns, all queuing up to do five point turns to get out of a cul de sac. 
But it also, it seems to me to speak to just how hard this is. Because obviously Waymo's been doing this since 2009, I believe. They put in, I don't know how many billions, them and others. And there's still something as simple as like, oh, there's a sign that says you can't go down this street. So you have to turn down another street. And all of a sudden, it's just like there's a glitch in the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the interesting thing to me is it's it's all relative because robots do relatively dumb looking things from time to time, right? We'd say, oh, we're human. We're better than that. That said, humans do dumb things all the time on the roads, right? Like the amount of people that go out on the road drunk, go out on the roads incredibly tired, distracted, angry. They look at their cell phones. They do all these things that inherently make everyone else's lives on the roads more dangerous. And when I, I think about you know weighing up the pros and cons of robots and human drivers, and I, I think about the things that robots get really right all the time. And then I think about the things they sometimes get tripped up on, like you're saying, maybe it's a three-point turn, maybe it's something rather to a human, rather rudimentary. But then I think back to humans and how much we are not very good at driving in a lot of different circumstances and, and robots in those cases tend to thrive. Right. So I want to get back to that. But before we do, I want to just kind of better understand you, basically. Like, how did you, you're obviously not from these shores. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in a town in England called Halifax. Oh, yeah. And uh, not known for too much, except, uh, (laughs) well, it's known for a few things, but... uh, The bank. The bank, exactly. And, you know, I I grew up and I was obsessed with writing software. As a a teenager, 12-year-old, building software was the thing that I spent my time doing when I wasn't at school or what have you. What kind of computer were you using? Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, Apple machines. I uh, grew yep. up a total Apple fanboy and, and still remain that to this day. And, um, you know, that that connection, for lack of a better word, is ultimately what brought me here because I, I grew up watching keynotes of Steve Jobs present the latest and greatest product. And I thought, wow, that's that's the most exciting thing <laughs> that could possibly happen. And, um, you know, read up about Silicon Valley and all the the legendary history of this place and and thought that's just where I I have to be. What, you know, is fascinating is that the internet just offers opportunities for folks like myself in a small town in in England to get to know people that that lived here and worked here. And uh, over the years, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old up to eventually, I think we moved out here when I was about 21. There was always that that whispering in my ear to make the leap to come out here and uh, eventually did so. I've been here now with my wife about 11 years and I, I can't think of a more exciting place to be than here. Where did you study in the UK? So I'm terrible uh, when it comes to education. <laughs> so software, uh, building software, computer science was a thing I, I did study for a brief period of time. But one of the first companies I joined moving out here was a company called Udacity. So we've had Sebastian on this pod. Oh, very cool. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's he's uh, he's great. And Udacity to me appealed because it, it was the thing I used to dip my toes into artificial intelligence. It was a learning method that really appealed to me, right? I, I could learn on my own, in my you know, bedroom, at my own pace, all these fascinating topics. I learned what I wanted. I didn't learn what I didn't want. 
And uh, that that form of education really appealed to me. And, and that's, again, how I started to dip my toes into artificial intelligence and robotics. And eventually I went to work there and, and lead a number of these different curriculum areas, again, like machine learning and robotics. Sorry. So you didn't go to uni proper. You just came out. You decided to come out here at some point. I went to university in the UK for about uh, five months. And then... And that was, you're like, mm, not for me. I dropped out. And yes. And at that point, I'd started building iPhone apps. Uh, this was a long time ago now, but I'd started building iPhone apps. And this was the, the gold rush of iPhone uh, apps, if you remember. How long ago would that have been? 2010-ish? Yeah, uh, maybe the a few years before that, the App Store, I think, came out in 2008. But I got a little bit interested in, in the jailbreaking community, and eventually the App Store came out, and all these friends I'd made building software when I was a teenager, they were also building apps. So I uh, just started building apps, and I never intended for it to become a job or a, a way to make money, but it did. Was there one app where it was like, wow, this one did really well? Uh, there was there was one app called Voices, and you spoke into your iPhone, and it changed your voice in uh, in real time. So think about Darth Vader, think about Chipmunk sound effects. That's and, actually quite. Does that still exist? Uh, I don't believe so. I know there's tons of them out there these days, though. Yeah, it was yeah, actually yeah. A, a fairly immense technical achievement at the time to to pat myself on the back because. <laughs> iPhone was very underpowered at the time compared to where it is today and to do real-time yeah. voice uh, uh, transcription and, and decoder. It, it's, it's pretty crazy. But um, the app eventually sold just over a million copies uh, in the App Store. And wow. the, the most exciting thing was that uh, on Christmas Day, and I actually forget the year, it was on the top of the App Store for that year. In the UK? Uh, this was in the US and, and a handful of other stores around the world. And oh wow, that was... A really great moment. And probably the more exciting thing, though, which uh, the app itself was not as big a commercial success, but um, Apple featured an app I made, my first app, in fact, on um, a TV commercial. No way. That was this culmination of, again, obsessing about Apple and Steve Jobs and, and iPhones and the products they built. And to see my app on, on a TV screen with their TV commercials running, that was an amazing moment. So you're kind of, you're, is it fair to call you like an autodidact? You kind of taught yourself how to do all this, broadly speaking. Yes. And I, I made up for my own weaknesses of learning in, in classrooms because I, I truly sucked at doing that. I still do. So I had to find ways to do it and learn myself. And thankfully, there's tons of resources out there. And so how did you actually end up in the States? Did you just buy a one-way ticket at some point? <laughs> uh, somewhat. I had this app company in the UK and I'd heard from a few friends in the US about this thing called Y Combinator. Oh, yes. And I uh, actually came out with my wife at that time and we just uh, met a few of these these folks and I shudder to think of what uh, that must have, uh, <laughs> what I must have sounded like at that point. Uh, right. Very new to it, to all of this, but came out here and, and met some of those folks and and, uh, and they encouraged me to apply to Y Combinator. I did so back in twenty uh, late 2010 and thankfully was accepted into YC. For your app development company? Uh, yes, we decided, or I decided, because it was just me at the time, to take one of the apps that I built and to build a company uh, around it. And that company was ultimately a failure, uh, but that's okay. Learned a lot. Yeah. But that was really the start of being in Silicon Valley. Right. So you were already married at the time. Yeah. Got married really quite young. I was 21 
and wow. uh, we now have, <laughs> now have two kids, a seven-year-old and a one-year-old and uh, love life out here. That's great. So you came out here, you did that startup that failed. And, you know, we have a lot of Brits on the, on this pod for obvious reasons. And I don't know if you've had this similar experience where in the UK, and I know it's changing, but failure is, is not something that is celebrated. Whereas here it's kind of like, this is just part of the, the fire you must go through on your way to something better. Did you find that? How was that for you? What was your experience? I find it extremely uncomfortable, to be honest with you. I, in the UK, I'm sure everyone will know there's a, a TV show called Dragon's Den. Oh, yeah. And in the US, you have a TV show called Shark Tank. And they are basically the same concept. You have entrepreneurs who have put their heart and soul into an idea, get on stage and present them. And the cultural differences are there to see in those two TV shows. <laughs> that's a very that's a very good way to think about it, actually. You're right. You see Dragon's Den, you see entrepreneurs basically torn to shreds, told their <laughs> idea is worthless and that they should give up on it. You see drag, uh, Shark Tank and you see almost the inverse. You see optimism, you see real celebration of entrepreneurialism and, and building new things. And I think, again, that just lays bare just the total differences in the culture. I was talking to a European founder yesterday, and I, I do believe it places European founders in the U.S. at a slight or a, a medium disadvantage to mm. uh, U.S.-based founders because we tend to pitch our companies in a way that's more conservative, in a way that's more... It's way more low-key and kind of self-effacing. Absolutely. And that is not the way that Silicon Valley has been built no. uh, historically. So. It's a challenge, but I, over you know, 11 years now, I've tried to blend the two and have some humbleness about, hopefully, again, born from kind of European roots, but some excitement and optimism that comes from Silicon Valley and, and blend the two into what I hope is, a, is a, good, a good formula. Yeah. And so that company failed. And then what did you do next? I mean, because you, and again, this is kind of your British understatedness coming through. You're like, yeah, well, I started learning on Udacity. And then you end up like becoming an executive and running a whole team there as far as uh, according. <laughs> so how did that happen? Yeah, well, I had become a huge fan of the company from the outside. And my startup had failed. And I was looking to, I was exploring what my next thing might look like thinking about launching another company. And, and ultimately, I thought that two things were changing. One is people were going to learn very differently in future compared to the ways it's happened before. Credentialing has to change and should change. It's an entirely unfair and very biased process. But also, machine learning was becoming a very clear driver of improvement in the world. Mm. This was, you know, in the 2013, 2014 sort of uh, timeframe, we were starting to see computer vision that was getting closer to beating humans at certain tasks. We were seeing machine learning integrated into, into tools and products and behind the scenes, making those products better. And it was very clear to me that there wasn't enough people that understood this, this area. It was an area that historically was locked up inside high-end, you know, academic institutions. And it needed to be improved upon by millions of developers, not just in the US, but all over the world. So Udacity to me was this calling to, to go and, and see if I could help accelerate that. And I joined and ultimately ended up leading Udacity's engineering teams, content teams, and product teams. 
So basically designing the courses. Courses, classrooms, the overall product. And I spent the vast majority of my time on areas that other places weren't teaching. So again, machine learning, robotics, Mm. we even taught self-driving cars. We taught advanced computer science theories. We taught flying cars and virtual reality development. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you're, because you don't have a PhD in any of this. You don't even have a university degree in any of this. And you're basically helping create these programs to educate all kinds of people in exactly these things. It's just fascinating. Well, I think that's my biggest advice to anyone, that there's a lot of reasons to not do something. And and typically, sometimes it's this fear of not knowing enough about an area. And I'll be the first to admit, imposter syndrome is something that I and, and almost everyone in Silicon Valley, well, all over the world, I would imagine, suffer with. And self-driving cars has been one of these areas that you look through its history, it's always been started and developed in these PhD programs all yeah. the way back to the Delta Challenges and, and not just in PhD programs, but the best universities in the world, right? The Stanford's, the Carnegie Mellons. And, um, you know, seeing that and seeing this sort of elitist mentality of what it was, you know, many years ago now, it bugged me. And <laughs> it's not rocket science. It's very complex but it's entirely approachable Mm. if you put the time in to learn about this technology and about the products that are going to come from it. There's a bunch of impact anyone can have in this field, and I encourage anyone to give it a shot and see if they, they enjoy it. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So you ended up running those teams and helping design those courses and classrooms, etc. at Udacity. You did that for, what, four-ish years? Exactly. And... After four years there, and we'd launched the self-driving car course, artificial intelligence classes, et cetera, et cetera. What was very clear to me is, again, that acceleration of people moving towards these, these sorts of subject matter areas was only getting faster. And we were seeing students all over the world, in the UK, in the Middle East, in China, in South America. They were building things with the content that we were teaching them. And improving the state of the art again in computer vision machine learning and everything and it felt like uh why are these folks getting to have all the fun (laughs) right they're they're building self-driving cars and we're teaching it why not actually go build a self-driving car and and that led to voyage and building our own self-driving startup that uh eventually was uh was acquired by cruise and how was the process of actually going out there again talking about the kind of that the European versus American approach of actually like, all right, I'm going to do a deck and I'm going to go around Sand Hill Road and I'm going to pitch and I have no experience in this extremely, extremely, extremely difficult thing. Give me tens of millions of dollars to go figure it out. (laughs) So I remember vividly my very first pitch for that first startup and it was just an utter train wreck. And it turned (laughs) out, I mean... It was... Why? Why was it a train wreck? What happened? 
It was a train wreck for a few reasons. The first is that I was pitching Sequoia Capital. Oh, which so you just went straight in, like the top of the tree. Straight to the top of the tree. I don't even really understand how I got the meeting, but it was with uh, three Sequoia Capital partners. And these guys were the best of the best within Sequoia. And I just show up and I'm just there to talk about a company I've built. I don't have a deck. I don't have any real pitch. I don't know how much I'm trying to raise. I don't know what valuation. <laughs> I don't even know what stage I'm raising for. And, and these three folks were more than way too kind because I, I was just faking my way through this meeting. Yeah. And it was clear for everyone to see I was doing that. So after that meeting, I, I went home and recognized there's, there's a lot I have to learn about this process that I, I didn't know. The interesting thing, though, is, uh, you know, having a, someone like a, a Steve Jobs as an idol, you inherently understand that showmanship is, is a thing and totally. that there's still lots to add to a pitch, give it substance, give it some structure, a, a story, a narrative. But the kind of showmanship is, is something I'd expected coming into pitching in Silicon Valley. So although I, I was still horrible at it at that time, there was a, a feeling that there was at least one thing I understood and, and could build on and, and the rest would come from it. But so for that first company, I believe we raised about close to $5 million from some really great folks, Andreessen Horowitz, Greylock. For that first raise. For that first raise. Right. So after that failure of a pitch, went to, you know, back to the drawing board and, and talked to a, a number of different folks, raised about $5 million from those folks. Uh, Voyage, we ultimately raised about $52 million. So yeah. quite a different scale. And, you know, by that point, I'd felt a little more comfortable in my skin in Silicon Valley. So it, it didn't feel as, as strange, but it's a very strange process. You know, people tell you to not associate yourself with your company because if, if someone says no, then you inherently take that as a knock. Totally. And you try your best to disassociate those two things, but it's absolutely impossible. The person presenting is ultimately being gauged by the room as to, to whether they're going to be successful in what they're saying they're going to be successful at. And uh, it's very difficult to tear those two things apart. But raised $52 million at Voyage from folks like Coastal Ventures, uh, Charles River Ventures, initialized capital and, and a bunch of great folks. And Voyage, so where did you get to over those? Because you said you finally sold the company to Cruise earlier this year. By the time you sold, where had you got to in terms of, you know, whether that was the technology or the service or the rollout, just kind of where was the company by the time you sold? So we thought of success at Voyage with two areas. One is the communities that we worked with, and the other was, of course, the technology. So from a community perspective, we had signed agreements, contracts with a handful of communities around the country. Mm. The most marquee was a location in Florida with 100, 150,000 senior citizens living within it. Wow. We had exclusive rights to operate uh, self-driving cars in that region, moving those folks from point A to point B. And those are driverless, safety driver, or what was the... For Voyage, those were at that moment in time with our safety drivers right. in the front seat. Got you. But one of the other things we made a lot of progress on from a technology perspective was different vehicle generations. So we had our G1 vehicle, our G2 vehicle, and our G3. And our G3 vehicle, which was probably about a year before the acquisition, was fully capable of, of driverless. Um, it was 
a software hardware combination that we had really began to validate for fully driverless. We had partnerships with folks like Fiat Chrysler to integrate our software into their vehicles. And uh, that G3 was on the cusp of, of driverless in the communities in which we operated. So why sell? Why sell? Well, a few different factors. One is that self-driving cars are inherently a long-term challenge. Even if you achieve driverless in a certain, in a single location, there's still a journey to get that to, to thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people. And that requires capital and it requires a growing team and it requires solving unsolved problems. And, um, you know, the industry's gone through its ups and downs over the years. And when, you know, we found ourselves, when was it late 2020, we assessed all the different options and found that ultimately selling the company was going to deliver the most optimal outcome for everyone in, in that particular environment for self-driving cars, specifically for, you know, passenger moving services. Because it was a bit of a self-driving winter, wasn't it? Because you had Uber selling out and Waymo was like kind of wading through treacle and they're getting rid of their CEO. I mean, it was kind of, it felt like there was this burst of everybody getting excited about this is the brave new world and then it was like shit this is really hard maybe we shouldn't throw so much money at this there was definitely a increase in skepticism over the years since we started voyage from investors right and and that's natural and that's not necessarily a problem right it's it's a, a maturation of an industry you're inherently going to have folks that decide to sit on the sidelines going forward I think that the thing that was always, you know, the, the challenge for Voyages, again, I, I felt and, and still remain confident that with a small team, various limited forms of autonomy could be achieved. Mm. Then the question really becomes, as a passenger moving business, how do you ultimately take this and compete with the folks like a cruise, like yeah. a Waymo, like Uber, like Lyft? because that is going to be how this company either becomes ultra successful and goes public or it ultimately fizzles out and, and dies. And, um, you know, over the years, I, I begun with all this kind of naive optimism in the beginning that this could be done with small groups of people and that the, the bigger problem could be solved with that small group. And over the years, just seeing the, the immense challenges that we'd faced and yet still in many cases overcome, it seems like there was this very important moment at the end of 2020 where we had to decide, are we better off continuing on this journey and making strides, albeit not as big as the big guys, or do we decide to, to sell the company? And again, we, we decided on the latter. But what was really important to me is not just to sell the company you know, in a, in a situation where we're, we're not able to have a say as to which company we sell to, right? Because I want to be in this industry for the next 10, 20, 30 years. I, I want to be at a company that I believe can be the winner in this field, not just in the US, but around the world. Mm. And I, I want the Voyage team to be happy and, and able to be successful in their roles. And having the ability to talk to other self-driving companies and, and learn the you know, the, the different advantages and many other things that was important to me. And I, I came out after that process with a very clear picture that Cruise was going to be that winner. Right. And I, I think only in, you know, the last few months was starting to be able to show to the world why that is the case with driverless in San Francisco and a number of other milestones. So I think it's uh, largely been validated at this point. 
kind of going back to where we started in terms of self-driving, what do we get to? Is it, you know, because when people hear self-driving cars or they hear Tesla full self-driving, those words conjure this idea that like, okay, I just get my car, I put in the destination and that is it. No matter if it's raining, it's snowing, sunny at night, doesn't matter. It just like does it. And it feels like we've kind of got almost to the top of the mountain, but then it's trying to get to that last 1% or whatever, which is the really, really difficult bit. Just trying to understand kind of from where you sit, obviously you have perspective uh, that's different than, you know, the man in the street. Is that realistic? It's realistic, yes. The time frame is uncertain for all of those things to be accomplished, but it's definitely within reach. There is no reason why a self-driving car cannot drive in heavy rain or in heavy snow or in any weather condition, really. It's just a, a consequence of putting enough great minds on it for enough, a long enough period of time to see it through. And the challenges of, of getting a self-driving car out the door in regular conditions in San Francisco is the most immense challenge. The remaining challenges that follow, they will be still very difficult and they will still take time. But solving San Francisco in regular conditions, that's the challenge that's taken seven years. Because San Francisco's streets are super dense, really hilly, really complicated place. It's insane. I mean, I, I grew up again in Halifax and yeah. we, we had cobbled streets and they were very wide. Yeah. And I, I say cobbled streets, so there was like two cobbled streets. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, <that's fine. laughs> uh, the, the challenge of San Francisco is that at any one time, you have to be as a self-driving car monitoring potentially hundreds of other agents around you, whether it's vehicles, whether it's pedestrians, yeah. whether it's motorcyclists, bicyclists, and you have to be able to in real time, understand what they're about to do and make safe, intelligent driving decisions as a result of computing what we think they're about to do. Doing that for, you know, a handful of pedestrians in a retirement community is one thing. Doing it for hundreds in a very dynamic environment is is a total other thing yeah. and solving that and getting that on the roads that's the big unlock again everything that follows from here is not going to be simple but it's going to be it's going to look trivial in comparison uh, to solving that so is it effectively a data problem like any machine learning algorithm you just need to throw more and more kind of edge cases as much data as possible so it can kind of it's not surprised by anything can deal with anything is that the issue because it feels like Waymo, they've done, I don't know how many million miles at this point, and they still have needed a safety driver. So it's it's a data problem for sure. It's also a software problem and a product problem. Mm. This is the thing I, I think has been often forgotten, which is, okay, so yes, to make a car intelligent and interact safely and intelligently with all these different actors machine learning is integral to that. And seeing just how many machine learning models are in a Cruise AV, it's mind blowing. It's it's not just one, it's it's tens of, of ML models doing a variety of different tasks. That's That's one thing, but that alone is insufficient. To deliver a product, you also need highly competent software surrounding it. And you also need a sense of what the product should be accomplishing. So as an example there, so when it comes to any sort of transportation service, well, things like 
pullovers and the pickup and drop-off experience really matter, right? And data is not going to help you when it comes to that. Uh, you need to have just really competent software that can help you in those moments and show that that pickup and drop-off experience is, is seamless. And as another example, from a product perspective, well, how do we make this autonomous vehicle incredibly comfortable? This should not just be an improvement in safety, as we talked about. This should be an improvement in the experience of getting from point A to point B and making an AV comfortable and spending the time hammering on those features and making that awesome. That's yet another thing that Cruise has spent a lot of time on. So calling it just a data problem, I think, forgets that this yeah. has to be a product. We can't just throw machine learning at it and hope the car learns to drive better than a human. We have to really strengthen the machine learning models we have with software and with a real insight as to what the product should be capable of. And then just lastly, going back to the San Francisco issue. So if San Francisco is solved, if next year you guys are offering robo-taxis, as we like to call them, in the arc of the kind of self-driving industry's kind of progress, how big, big a deal is that? You know, acknowledging that San Francisco is such a uniquely difficult place. So for everyone in the industry, it's, it's huge. It's the Everest of self-driving cars and to have conquered it would be a, a massive achievement. I don't think it matters who does it first, although I'm obviously biased. Everyone wants to be the company that does it first. Yeah. I think it just matters that it's, it's, a, it's a problem that a company has solved. And again, I'm very proud to be at Cruise because of that. That said, that there's going to be a lot that follows. My, like I said, when I'm on my driverless rides, the first two minutes, it's, it's, it's amazing. You look, you see no one in the front seat. We you know, sometimes see people outside the AV. They're waving at the AV. They're really excited to see no one in the front seat. Yeah. But ultimately, this, this just boils down to a transportation product, right? It's got to get you from point A to point B, and it's got to do so better than the equivalents that are out there today. And that's where, you know, our work will never be done. It's going to be a continuous improvement, just like the iPhone is on iPhone 13 or whatever it is at this point. There's going to be many iterations of a Cruise AV that makes that product better and better and better, and customers will get to benefit from that iteration. And sorry, just so I understand, you know, conquering the Everest, i.e. San Francisco, is that down to mapping the city as well? In other words, if you then move to New York or Chicago or London or any city or any place, is part of this equation, you have to create this incredibly detailed map of wherever this place is as a part of this infrastructure. So the short answer is yes, but the, uh, the longer answer is a little messier. So mapping is something that I see often talked about in self-driving as a limitation mm. and that other folks like a Tesla, for example, don't take the same approach. So inherently their approach is more scalable. Uh, the truth is that what is happening with mapping is, is quite simple. It's, it's effectively telling the AV that instead of detecting in real time where a stop line is or where a traffic light is, we can tell it ahead of time that you should expect AV, a stop line here mm. or a traffic light there. And that reduces the burden on the AV to have to detect those things in real time. It also improves the product, right? Like blowing a stop line, going through a red light. These are things that are both safety and, and product challenges. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen. That said, mapping is inherently scalable. 
And to spin up a map of New York City or any city is a, is a process that we have down to a T. This, mm. this does not take as long as a lot of people think it does. And, and what I'd also add to it is that to deliver a driverless car in San Francisco, and, and by driverless, I mean fully driverless, you cannot rely on your map to always be the source of truth. Yeah. So Cruise does not rely on this map to always be accurate all of the time. We have a number of different fallbacks and, and safeguards to say, does the world look different than the map that I'm being fed? If that world looks different, I still need to be able to drive for a period of time. So again, I think a lot of folks think that these maps are like the rail tracks of self-driving cars, right? They, they just follow this like dotted line through the world. The truth, it, it couldn't be further from that. It's very much about giving the AV some input as to where things are. But when those things aren't where we think they are, the AV is still able to detect that and still provide a great experience. Two more questions and I'll let you go. And these are easy, easy-ish. Your worst day of work ever. What is it? And then either your best day or like an act of kindness that someone did unto you that has stuck with you. Worst day ever. There's so many. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, uh, the worst day ever was at Voyage during COVID. And this was, you know, March, April, 2020. Mm. Uh, and we, we had to lay off uh, a handful of folks at Voyage. It was gut-wrenching mm. and it was something I just know we needed to do, but just didn't want to do. Yeah, And doing that and telling those people and telling the company and everything else was just, it was horrible. But it was far more horrible for those folks who were impacted yeah, yeah. by it. Yeah. But uh, that was a low moment for sure. You know, the, the best day I, I have to go back to. So besides, you know, experiencing my first driverless ride yes. in a cruise AV, it's a bit too recent to be the best day ever. But when I look back at um, my career, that day of waking up on Christmas morning and seeing the thing that I built on the top of the app store, that was one of those moments where it's like a, a double whammy, right? You, totally. you go Christmas day, it's inherently exciting. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but the thing you built is being used that day by people all around the world. And ultimately that's what drives me and gets me very excited about self-driving cars. It's that 99.99% of the population has never experienced a self-driving car. They haven't even seen a self-driving car. Totally. That, that magical moment when people experience it whether it's in self-driving cars or software or apps or anything else, I think that's what uh, makes for the best days, you know, for myself. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Oliver for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all, as ever, for the ratings, the reviews, for telling your friends, your family, your neighbors, everybody about this wonderful podcast. And I know that's what you're doing. Also, of course, for the tips in the ACAST creator feature, always, always appreciated. I will be writing about Oliver in the paper this weekend and a few other bits and pieces. And yeah, and that's it. Otherwise, um, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson in the paper, thetimes.co.uk. And that is all. So have a fabulous weekend. Thank you again for listening. And we will talk to you next week. <laughs>